It's been an amazing morning already with all the different pieces and all the remarkable uh, families and children and wonderful things. Uh, it's great to be here and be a part of this. Let, let's pray and, and jump in. Father in heaven, please be with us today as we reflect on your word, on the prophecies, and on the coming of the one who fulfilled the prophecies. Help us, Lord, uh, to hear your voice, to hear your spirit, and to find peace. In Jesus' name, amen. So I don't know how it is with you, but sometimes for me, I find the prophets a little hard to understand. So, so let me give you an example here, and we'll, we'll jump in. This is connected to the text you just heard, Isaiah chapter 7. Now, now we had some technical challenges this morning, so we didn't actually get the text onto the screen. So you're going to have to do some work with me today. I'm using the same Bible that's in the pew with you, so if you want to grab it and follow along, uh, you'll have to look it up as we go along today. But we're starting in the, in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah chapter 7. And in Isaiah chapter 7, we find these words. Uh, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 1. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. Now, this might sound a little familiar to you if you happen to have been here October 14 when we were in the Not Afraid series. I, I used this story in this passage as a contrast between Ahaz and Hezekiah, who both faced danger and adversity. Now, Hezekiah was actually the son of Ahaz, but they both faced danger and adversity in Jerusalem. But we're not going to focus on that story today. There is the angle on it related to how they responded and, and the way the Lord delivered at different times. But we're going to revisit this text again because there's a verse in there that you probably know very well and a verse in there that you probably hear a lot this time of year. So... Before we get to that, I want to read one more verse. So we read verses 1 and 2. I also want to read verse 3 because it becomes relevant in a second. Isaiah 7, verse 3. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Sheer Yashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. So hang on to this for just a second. Isaiah's son who is at least old enough at this point, we don't know exactly how old he is, but at least old enough to go with Isaiah to meet the king. His name was Shear Yashub, and that name means a remnant shall return. A remnant shall return. So hang on to that, and let's go on. So, so in short, to summarize the next few verses, God sends Isaiah to tell Ahaz to not be afraid, but trust in the Lord in this crisis, and the enemies will disappear. But Ahaz is not on board with trusting the Lord. This approach does not please him, and there's a lot of good reasons why. Ahaz has not particularly been faithful to the Lord. He, he has sought other gods for other things. 
So we jump down to verse 10, Isaiah 7, verse 10. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Now, now notice, if you're looking in your translation, the word Lord there is, it's all capital letters. Some of them may be smaller, but it's L-O-R-D, all capital. This is uh, the, the, the Bible translator's way of translating the name of God. So in the old days, it used to be Jehovah. We said that, but that was a very anglicized version and then attempts to get maybe a little closer to the actual Hebrew expression. The name Yahweh has been used recently. I don't know exactly what the, what the pronunciation is. It's probably best we don't. But nonetheless, he says, ask a sign of Yahweh your God. There's something about that that makes it a little more personal than just Lord your God. Because to us, Lord is a title. But this wasn't a title. This was a name. God had given them his name. So ask the God whose name you know for a sign. Let it be deep as Sheol, that's the place of the dead, or high as heaven. But Ahaz says, I will not ask, I will not put Yahweh to the test. Now don't mistake this for a righteous statement. Don't mistake this for what Jesus said when he was tempted in the wilderness when he says, it says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Because that's not what's going on here. God has actually said to him, test me. Ask for a sign. And Ahaz is saying, I won't because I'm not going to rely on you. In verse 13, and Isaiah said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now that's the verse out of here you probably know. But you usually hear it in a different context and we'll get to that in a second. Verse 15, he shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be, des will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. So the direct context of this passage, of what's being said here, is that there's going to be a child born very soon, and before he becomes of age, before he is old enough on his own to choose between good and evil, the land of Israel and the land of Syria will be destroyed by the Assyrians. That's the original context of this prophecy. But now let's make this whole thing even stranger. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 8. So that's the very next chapter. Just turn over to the next chapter. And this is in the context of this same reality, this same crisis of the Assyrians coming against Jerusalem. Isaiah chapter 8 verse 1. Then Yahweh said to me, take a large tablet and write on it in common characters belonging to Maher Shalal Hashbaz. And I will get reliable witnesses, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jeberechiah to attest for me. Now this is an interesting phrase, this Mahar Shalal Hashbaz. And roughly it means the spoil speeds, the prey hastens. In other words, what it means is destruction is upon you. 
But as weird as that is, it gets even weirder. Isaiah 8, verse 3. And I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, Call his name Mahershalal Hashbaz. For before the boy knows how to cry, My father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. So what are we seeing here? Well, first of all, God has Isaiah name his kids some crazy stuff. Sheir Yashub, a remnant will return. Come here, a remnant will return. It's a, it's a little strange, right? We don't name our kids things like that. So, so Sheir Yashub, maybe he's up to here. And then, then there's a baby, Maher Shalal Hashbaz. The spoil speeds, the prey hastens. Now, this, this is strange to us, but, but it is no accident because Isaiah's children, by their names, become a part of his prophetic ministry. And all of their lives, as people see them throughout all of their lives, they are a living reminder to everyone of the, of the words of God. And this is a fact confirmed in Isaiah 8, verse 18. Isaiah makes this statement, Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. So he was to name them these strange names so that all their lives, even after Isaiah himself was gone, just by their names they would serve as a witness to the message of the Lord and the proof of the outcome of what he says. And it is in this reality that I believe leads to the second thing we ought to notice in verses 3 and 4. And I'll read verse 3 again. And I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, call his name Maher Shalal Hashbaz. Now presumably, the prophetess is Isaiah's wife. Though we have no clear indication that that she bore that title of prophetess because she prophesied in a traditional way. Rather, it seems God used the children she produced to bear his message, thus making her a prophetess, albeit in what we might consider a rather unconventional matter, manner. But let's think about that for a second. Why do we insist that all prophets be conventional? Perhaps our surprise at her being identified as a prophetess speaks more to our assumptions and biases about what a prophet is than anything else. But let me ask you this. Who can God use to make his point? Well, I want to say anyone or anything because you remember... Balaam's donkey. So it kind of looks like God can do what he wants to make his point. And the second question, how must God make his points? Well, according to this, he can make his point any way he wants. He can have someone speak it. That's traditional. Or he can have someone bear children. And those children are the sign. Maybe when it's come to prophecy... We've been a little too narrow 
in our definition of a prophet and in our determination of how a prophet is supposed to do business. Maybe the Lord is speaking to us in many ways. Are we ready to listen for his voice? Now the third thing that this passage clearly states is that Maher Shalal Hashbaz is old enough, when he's old enough to clearly talk, the kingdoms that Ahaz fears will be destroyed. Now let me just throw in an additional point here. If in fact Isaiah has but one wife, now this is something not confirmed or denied in the text, but likely based on what was the norm in the days of Isaiah's time, and if in fact Maher Shalal Hashbaz is the younger brother of Shir Yashub, and assuming Isaiah did not have an earlier wife who died, then I'm not going too far, am I, to suggest that the prophetess of chapter 8 is in fact not a virgin, right? Because there's an older brother. As chapter 7 suggests, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a child. Now there's been much interesting discussion on this point in, amongst scholars and various commentaries, but suffice it to say, there is disagreement on whether the word translated virgin in chapter 7 does not rather suggest the meaning young woman. And this debate is centered in this seeming dilemma of the order of birth of Isaiah's children, and there is nothing certain in the passage to tell us one way or the other. And of course, all this would be little more than interesting speculation were it not for the fact that someone would come along some 700 years later and reapply these words in a context where the virgin reality of the woman who would bear the child to be the sign of God's deliverance would in fact be a virgin. But for this story, we must jump to Matthew chapter 1. So turn in your Bible there to Matthew chapter 1, and we're going to start at verse 18. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, just a little thing on the name Jesus. That's, of course, the, again, the anglicized version of the name Yeshua, which is the Hebrew name, same name as Joshua, the one who led the people into the land of Canaan. Now, the literal meaning of the name Yeshua is Yahweh saves. So that was Jesus' name, Yahweh saves. Now, it's not directly stated in Matthew that Mary is a virgin, though it is implied by noting that she and Joseph had never come together and that Joseph would rightly be at least surprised 
when he found out she was pregnant, thus necessitating the message from the angel that the child within her was of the Holy Spirit. Now, I will leave you to ponder the implications of all of that. But if we want to be specific regarding Mary, Luke makes it crystal clear. Luke chapter 1. Turn to Luke. Luke chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. Luke 1, 26 and 27. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. So it is clear enough that Mary is a virgin and likely clear that Isaiah's wife was not at the time of Maher Shalal Hashbaz. But what is the link here? Back to Matthew. Matthew chapter 1, verse 19. And her husband Joseph, being a just man, this is a little review so we get the context, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, <clears throat> do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And if you didn't know the original context of the prophecy that Matthew is in fact quoting, you might be inclined to think when you read this, how nice. But when you do know the context, it's hard to not say, wait, what? How does that apply to Mary and Jesus? Wasn't this a prophecy centered in a place in time? Didn't it have to do with the invasion of the Assyrians and that this child, who was not the firstborn, would be a sign because before he grew up, Ephraim and Syria would be destroyed? How is he applying this to Jesus? And this is not the only time you would find what we might consider to be strangely applied prophecies in Matthew's Gospel. For example, this one. In answer to King Herod's inquiry requiring where the Messiah was to be born, we get this from the scribes and the chief priests. Matthew chapter 2, so we're real close there, Matthew chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, they, that's the chief priests and the scribes, told him, Herod, in Bethlehem of Judea, this is where the Messiah is to be born, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now this is, of course, also a quote from an Old Testament prophet, and interestingly, from an Old Testament prophet who was a contemporary of Isaiah's. It was the prophet Micah. So if you want to head for Micah, that one might take a little longer to find because it's not as long. Head for Micah chapter 5. Because these words were the words of the prophet Micah. But here are those words in context. Micah chapter 5, verse 1. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. 
Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. Now here's what gets quoted. Verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is of old and from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. When the Assyrians come into our land and tread in our palaces, then we will rise, raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances, and he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. So one thing we learn from this, it wasn't just Matthew who was applying Old Testament prophecies in an interesting way. For these are the words of the chief priests and the scribes. But if you were to have read this in the day it was written, or in any of the days before Jesus came along, this prophecy would have filled you with more questions than answers. In fact, you might have thought, yeah, I'm not really sure how this even got fulfilled at all. I mean, by the time of Jesus, the Assyrians... The enemy named are long gone. They don't even exist anymore. See, prophecies are interesting things because often they only make sense when you look back at them. And often we don't realize what we are missing until it stands clearly before us. To us, when we read this passage, we can clearly enough see linkage to Jesus. You've got, you've got this, this description of where this one to come would be born, that, that he would shepherd the flock, that he would come in the majesty of the Lord, that he would be great to the ends of the earth, that there would be a period of time where the people would be given over until the woman gives birth, we can connect that with Mary if we want at this point. But here's the thing. I'm pretty sure nobody that read it at the time had any idea that that's what it might be about. In fact, I would suggest to you, Micah, who wrote it, had no idea what it was about. And then there's this prophecy, which to, to work demands a complete departure from any of the rules of applied prophecy I ever learned at seminary. Let me set up the context. This one will be found in Matthew chapter 2, and, and it's in the event after the wise men have come to Jesus. First they go to Jerusalem, and, and they ask, where is he who is born king of the Jews? And, and Herod is fearful of this, so he says, Go, make a careful search, and tell me where he is that I may worship him too. Well, he has no intention to do that. He has intention to kill him. And so the wise men travel on after they hear that he's to be born in Bethlehem. They go on to Bethlehem, and they find him 
But then they're warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, and they return home another way. So this is where we pick up the story, Matthew chapter 2, verse 13. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Here's the prophecy. Out of Egypt I called my son. It's beautiful, right? Beautiful as long as that's the only verse you read. The prophecy comes from the book of Hosea. So again, if you want to start searching for one of the minor prophets there, the book of Hosea, chapter 11. And the quote is specifically Hosea 11, verse 1. And you get to Hosea, and you look at chapter 1, and it says, When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. But then there's verse 2. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Okay, verse 1 applied to Jesus, wonderful. Verse 2, eh, not so much. So what is the point of all of this? Well, I have a couple points that I hope you can see. First, as I mentioned before, not all prophecy can be understood beforehand. Second, some prophecies end up transcending their original context. And sometimes there's hints that that's where they're going. And other times, it's out of the blue. I mean, this Hosea thing seems kind of out of the blue. It almost feels like a grabbing of language than an actual reference to a context. Now, I'll tell you what was explained to me that I think makes a lot of sense on this. But before I do that, one more point. Perhaps we need to be careful when we claim total understanding of prophecies. Demanding the elements of fulfillment perfectly match our expectations. Because sometimes the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees get it wrong. And this comes back to a point that needs to be made again and again. We must always maintain humility with all things pertaining to God. We do not own him. We do not control him. We do not tell him. We do our best to understand. And when it turns out what we understood is not what we thought it was, we don't kill the people that disagree. We maintain humility and a teachable spirit. And we try to move with the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit moves. Don't forget, the whole, the whole movement that the Seventh-day Adventist church grew out of that was a powerful movement that touched hearts, that caused, caused this amazing uh, reformation among people in North America. The main point was wrong. Jesus wasn't coming in 1844. But the movement was still a work of God. We've got to make peace with that. And we've got to be ready to move on when the time comes. 
But back to this idea of how in the world does this Hosea passage apply to Jesus? Well, the best description I ever heard on that was one of the things Jesus was doing was redeeming Israel's failed history. And so he went to Egypt, and out of Egypt, God called him. And he went to the River Jordan and passed through the waters, just like Israel came to the Red Sea and passed through the waters. And after Israel had gone through the waters, they spent 40 years in the wilderness. And after Jesus passed through the waters, he spent 40 days in the wilderness. You see, he's redeeming the story. He's going back and getting it right everywhere that Israel got it wrong. And in this context, yes, out of Egypt, God called his son. The first son, Israel, that came out of Egypt failed him. But the second son, Jesus, accomplished everything he called him to do. But one more prophecy from Isaiah that Matthew lays hold of. And this time we're in Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, verse 13. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. Now, Zebulun and Naphtali were sons of Jacob. And after they came into the land, Joshua divided the land, and Zebulun and Naphtali got land up in the area of the Sea of Galilee. Verse 14, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region of the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. So what is the original context of this Matthew quote? Interestingly, it comes in Isaiah chapter 9. So, so we've been to chapter 7, because there's quotes there. We've been to chapter 8, because it fleshes out that story. But now the very next chapter, chapter 9, this particular quote is found. So if you go back to Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1. Now a lot of the words in this are going to be familiar to you. Isaiah 9, verse 1. But there will be no gloom for, who, for her who was in anguish, in the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulders, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel in the fire. And now here we go. You're going to know this. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. 
on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. All of these prophecies that in their original context would put us in a different frame of mind, but in the reality of Jesus make us see that this was God's plan from the beginning. But sometimes they're hard to find. And sometimes they're hard to understand. And there really was no chance for most of those who lived before the time of Jesus to have ever understood what was really in these words. There was a conversation that took place about 2,000 years ago that I so wish I could have been a part of. I didn't even need to say anything. If I could have just walked behind them and listened. It was between the disguised Jesus and two men who had been believers in Jesus, and it went like this. Luke chapter 24. We're back in Luke now. Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? Such a glorious moment of irony. I love these ironic moments in the Bible. No, actually, he's the only one in Jerusalem who knew what was happening. But they're pretty sure this guy doesn't have any idea. Are you the only one? And Jesus said to them, What things? I love the way he played along. And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but, they did not, but him and they did not see. And Jesus said to them, O oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then here's the part. Here's the part I wish I could have heard. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Man, of all the stuff written in the Bible, why didn't they take notes? Why isn't that there? I actually know the answer to this, but I don't like it. The answer is we're supposed to go and look for ourselves. We're supposed to go back to the writings of the prophets and see how in Jesus it's all fulfilled. 
It's too easy. If, if he just writes it down, we just ignore it. But he wants us to go and look for ourselves. Because the words to them is the words to us, O oh, foolish ones and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken. We don't even know what the prophets have spoken most of the time. It's all there, but sometimes it's just so hard for us to see. So what is the main point? Why have we invested this time? Did we do this just to confuse ourselves? Well, I hope not. I hope you caught these points along the way. Not all prophecy can be understood beforehand. Some prophecies end up transcending their original context, sometimes with hints, other times seemingly out of the blue. Because of these realities, we've got to stay humble with our claims to perfectly understand the things of God. For we might one day find ourselves on the road to Emmaus and hear Jesus say, Oh, foolish ones. But the place I really want us to land is found somewhere else. It's in the book of Hebrews. So if you turn to the book of Hebrews, and, and I'm going to invite the band to come back, because they're going to lead us in some songs here in a moment. The primary point I want you to take home is this. You are a blessed people. Even more blessed than Israel of old. And here's why. Hebrews chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He, the Son, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Now, here's what I want you to see. Israel had the prophets, but you have the prophets and more. The prophets were a revelation of God, but only a partial one. Jesus is the full revelation of the Father. And you are blessed to have everything they had plus the knowledge of Jesus. These four verses in the book of Hebrews summarize an understanding of God's purpose better than the whole of the Old Testament, or at least more clearly. And the short telling of it exceeds any knowledge the prophets of old were ever able to attain. You know more about God's purpose then Isaiah, then Micah, then Hosea, then John the Baptist. You know more than the greatest of the prophets. 
because you have the full revelation of Jesus Christ. Sitting in your lap right now, in the Bible you're holding, are words that give you understanding greater than any of the prophets ever knew. Jesus once said this directly to his disciples, but indirectly to us. This is our reality, Matthew 13, verse 11. And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear but did not hear it. Christmas is the season when we purposely remember the coming of Jesus into the world, the one who would reveal to us the reality of the kingdom of heaven better than any prophet could say it or understand it. It all started, this clearest revelation, in a manger in Bethlehem, the king of glory, born a babe to save the world from sin and usher in a new age in which we live where we are called to live for his honor and glory. I pray you know how blessed you are. And I pray you find peace the prophets never knew this Christmas season.